HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Matt Patterson, lead engineer at Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at the James Beard House, and uh, tonight I'm going to be speaking with Chef Daniel Doyle of Pugin's Porch and Pugin's Hospitality in Charleston, South Carolina, about his dinner that he's prepared uh, for the James Beard House. The theme of the night is uh, Charleston Christmas, and he's delved into 200 years of history around Charleston Christmas menus. He's picked favorites put together a menu for tonight, and right now we're pulling him off the line uh, where he's preparing the menu for 80 people. So please enjoy this conversation with Chef Daniel Doyle. My name is Daniel Doyle. I'm the uh, chef partner of Pugin's Hospitality in Charleston, South Carolina, which consists of Pugin's Porch, Pugin's Smokehouse, and we have a new restaurant called Pugin's Southern Kitchen on the way. We're here at the James Beard House in Manhattan, down in New York City. And it's my understanding that this is not your first time here at the James Beard House. No, luckily, uh, for some reason, they liked me. Um, <laughs> um, I've, I've cooked in 2012, again in 13, 14, and then I did a uh, more kind of fun wing event with Springer Mountain Farms, and I think that was 17. So this is my fifth time cooking my fourth dinner here at the Beard House. They keep bringing you back. Something must be going, going right. Yeah, either they just like me or I do good food. I think it's a little bit of both. I think I get lucky, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so can you tell me uh, a little bit about tonight? I, I understand there's, there's maybe a theme that you guys haven't explored. Well, you know, um, so <laughs> when they, they, they came to us about an idea of doing like a Charleston Christmas. And so it was one of those things where I grew up in, you know, Virginia and North Carolina and, and been in Charleston for, oh, God, 17, 18 years now. But I didn't know what was synonymous with Charleston Christmas. I knew what a Southern Christmas was like, but what's Charleston Christmas? And so I did a lot of research and looking through books and even talking to like people that were from Charleston that work at the restaurants. And, you know, we all couldn't really uh, decide on exactly what that meant. And so I had a friend that actually works for us. And she's, um, her name's Dawn. And I was like, Dawn, I was talking to her about it. And she's like, hey, maybe you should reach out to Natalie Dupree, who is, uh, I mean, a great food historian, 
lives in Charleston. As a matter of fact, lives two doors down from our corporate offices, like legitimately on Queen Street. And um, so after asking around if anybody, I had met Natalie years earlier, but it wasn't like we were friends. And you don't just go knock on someone's door and go, hey, please spill your knowledge out to me. You know, I had a friend, um, Stephanie Burnt, who is a, is a, well, she does all kind of stuff in food. And in the long story short is she gave me, an, a, you know, an email kind of intro. And Natalie, just, you know, was very gracious about it. And so, you know, I went down there to her house. And, you know, it's an old Victorian Charleston home. And her, her and her husband's there. And there's a, a, a female chef there testing recipes for her next cookbook. So there's all kind of stuff going on. There's cats and, you know. Testing recipes and cats testing recipes, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and, a, and a sh- another chef in their testing, and, and and but it was like uh, she's just like an encyclopedia of just food in general. But she has a really you know vast knowledge of southern food, obviously, and because her most of her cookbooks are you know written on southern food, most of them, and um, so we just talked about what was synonymous with Charleston Christmas going all the way back, you know, hundreds of years ago to now. And she gave me a lot of reference books and a lot of ideas. And so what, you know, it's probably a two and a half, three hour conversation. <clears throat> and what I realized is, is that if I went as far back as some of that stuff, I don't know if the, the diners would understand it. So what I try to do is take elements and ideas from that conversation and, and fold them into tonight's dinner, you know? What, what about going too far back did you think might alienate some of the diners or, or make them confused? Well, I mean, you know, I, I want to stay true to what the restaurant is at the same time. And some of that, you know, you just go back into like doing, well, there's one thing called dabs. Well, you know, you say dabs now, and you know, well, that's a whole different connotation of what it actually is. And so there's just a lot of stuff that I didn't understand. I didn't know if it would really, in an overarching way, under, be understood. But I, what I was took away from it was is that you know, stay true to what Charleston is. And so that's why it's very, this menu is very seafood driven. You know, there's oysters because, you know, it's, it's oyster season. There's, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, the way we're doing the prime rib is a little bit different. The way we're just stylistically, we're doing like uh, Charleston uh, cracked rice, you know, Midlands, you know, doing filled peas and pink lady peas rather than just butter beans. Just trying to go back and harken back to what Charleston was, you know, 50 to 70 years ago. And you're saying some of those ingredients were more popular then, or those dishes were more popular yeah. then? They were, they were more popular then, and there were, well, I mean, you know, some of that stuff is, is popular now, but it's not popular on, on a national level. So trying to introduce that in a way of um, making it palatable for Diners in New York City, diners. I mean, you, you go to a beer dinner, you don't know where anybody's from. You're not I really, was wondering. Yeah, that. you're not really sure. They might just be like, they could be from anywhere, really. Mm-hmm. And so you want to kind of, <clears throat> I don't know, I don't know the right wording. Uh, you want to make sure that every, it's a good menu, everybody understands it and wants to eat it. And honestly, it must have been because it's the most tickets I've ever sold here. It's sold out at 84 people, I think, which... Wow. I don't think I've ever done more than 72, and I was told that was sold out. So the, there must be rooms I didn't even know exist, mm-hmm. or they're doing different like, configurations or whatever. Yeah, maybe, so, maybe they'll be setting up some plates in here. Yeah, um, we're, <laughs> in kind of a, we're in a closet kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's amazing. So 
you're planning a pretty ambitious menu for the night then. Uh, yeah. Are these, how many of the dishes would you say are things that you actually, you haven't really done before or you, or you wouldn't normally do? <laughs> well, I mean, um, I would say I've done similar things before, but just in different ways. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we've done, you know, grilled oysters. We've done uh, probably one dish that I've never done on a menu I've done in a home environment would probably be the oyster stew. Which, because that's not something that, well, oyster stew is one of those things. Either it's done really, really well, or it kind of sucks. Could, could you explain maybe, uh, just in a, in a quick way, how, how to make the oyster stew? And, and maybe what, what the difference is between somebody who does it really well and somebody who well, does it less well? Well, I mean, I think for me, well, first of all, oyster stew is a very simple process. Basically, what you're taking is the liquor from the oysters. Yeah, the liquor from the oysters. And and you're and you're basically letting that thicken in cream or half and half or milk or however you did it, you know, and letting that naturally thicken down. It's basically salt, white pepper. It doesn't have a lot of um, any other ingredients at all, honestly. And uh, so, and then you just take um, oysters and you st- stew them in there. And sometimes you do like Madeira or Sherry or something to give it flavor. And it's really simple. And a lot of people just mess that up, you know? Mm-hmm. They try to use thickening agents like ruse or a slurry or something like that. And it, it needs to be naturally thick. So it's not, yeah. it's called stew, but it's more like an oyster creamy broth in a way. Yeah, that sounds interesting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The word stew is kind of... Uh, it's, maybe, not, it's maybe, misused there, honestly. Maybe the name is what throws people off. Yeah, yeah, and so it's not meant to be thicker with potatoes or, you know what I mean? You know, you, you, you would probably use a little bit of mirepoix when you're cooking it down, but you would strain that out. It wouldn't be prevalent in the dish itself. Mm-hmm. And then you basically just put it in a bowl with stewed oysters and garnish it with like some, I usually do like some sort of oyster cracker just so that people kind of make that understanding you know mm-hmm. and then put a little bit of herbs and or like celery leaves or something like earthiness kind of give it a earthy back and then that's that maybe like a sherry drizzle just for a little bit of acid or hit it with a little bit of lemon zest or something just to give it a little pop a little acid back and then other than that that's pretty much it but a lot of people just stick in it too much or try to overthink it and put way too much stuff in it you know it's very simple you know you you might would put like some smoked bacon in there just for some texture or something, but otherwise it's very like four or five ingredients, kind of like simple, simplistic, just done in a really nice way. And the woman you spoke to, her name was Natalie, right? Yeah, Natalie n- yes, sir. Uh, did she tell you anything about the history of Charleston Christmas where you heard about an ingredient you just didn't know about? Or, uh, I mean, not necessarily. You like, we're like, what is that? Well, I mean, when she talked about some stuff that didn't fit in the dinner, she was talking about like, um, like flies curing hams, ham flies, and uh, <laughs> like the Hiberian, um, doing like Hiberian uh, whiskey um, punch and stuff. So she went into like some real things that I, if it wasn't in this setting, I think would be really, really cool. But like, I can't be like doing ham flies at the James Beard, I don't think. I, I might do that at a dinner party at my house or at her house, or just going back into like old you know, different kinds of ways of doing stews and like, or like oyster stuffed veal and oyster stuffed uh, rib loins and things like that. Like, you know, I just, 
So yeah, there was some really cool stuff. And I think what, what I really gathered from most of that conversation was is that a lot of people talk about doing true low country food, and I don't know if everybody's doing it to the fullest extent. And I think after this dinner and after I get past this kind of experience and open the new restaurant, I really like to try to focus that down and twist that down a little bit and try to like delve into that a little bit deeper and try to like see if I can, you know, bring some of that back to the forefront or just not even just me bring it back or just give it out to the diners and let people eat it and just see it and try it and like experience it. It's not about me bringing it back, just being allowing people to experience it because some of that stuff I've cooked in Charleston for, I don't know, 16, 17 years and I haven't experienced, yeah. you know what I mean? So like, and I've done some of the, you know, every chef that's pretty much ever, you know, most of the chefs in the city I've at least met and I mean, sure. most of their restaurants and you know, I don't see that food. Not normally. What is use use the term low country. What does low country mean to you? <clears throat> well, I mean, the low country is basically because you're below sea level, but I, I mean, mean for the cuisine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, low country mean for me is you know, seafood, you know, uh, fresh local seafood, um, using um, local farms, things that are indigenous to the area, like you know, uh, Charleston rice, um, peas, you know, collard greens, greens. Uh, Anything that's grown locally, I mean, even like carrots and radishes and trying to take what's abundant that's naturally has always been there and trying to highlight that in, in the best of ways rather than like over ingredients in things or overdoing it, kind of letting the food itself speak for itself. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, well, it seems to be going away from that, but it used to be like super over ingredients. Everything had 35, 40 steps and now okay. it's like... You know, I, I think people are, at least in, in the South, and even here for that matter, I've eaten in New York a lot of times, people are kind of getting away from that over-ingredients. It doesn't need 16 different things in it. You right. know, just make sure the things make sense that are in there. Mm -hmm. Make sure they flow well and have a good, you know, you want to have, you know, you want to have crunch. You want to have acid. You want to have savory. You, don't, you know what I mean? You want to try to hit every flavor spot on the tongue in every dish. This is the idea. Gotcha. You don't want it to be one note. Right. But it doesn't have to be, you know, 18 things either. Yeah. Again, not overthinking. Yeah, it doesn't have to be confusing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I've never been to the James Beard house before. Probably plenty of our listeners haven't. I saw the menu. It, it's it's quite lengthy. Is it organized in courses? Would you be able to say how many courses this dinner is? Yeah, it's a um, five-course dinner with three past hors d'oeuvres. And so... That sounds pretty ambitious. Uh, what do you do? How do you? How long have you known that you were going to come here? How long have you been prepping? And do you bring people with you? What, how does yeah, this work? Um, so probably this is the least uh, time I spent doing a dinner, honestly. Um, but I've known probably since July or August. Probably set the menu in early September. But um, and then. You know, worked on it, but basically what I what I decided to do this time is we, as my career has evolved, I try to do a little bit more as a team work with the guys, and so I, I basically wrote down a lot of ideas, and then I, like I talked about earlier, I went to Natalie and wrote down a lot of her ideas, or the ideas that we talked about, or, or styles, or however you want to put it, and then we went down with the team, and we all kind of sat together. So I brought my. Chef de Cuisine, Devon Grant from Pugin Smokehouse. He basically runs this Pugin Smokehouse kitchen side of it. Adam Close, who's the new executive chef of Pugin's Porch. 
and Chef de Cuisine, Joshua Ogilvie as well. So basically the three of us kind of sat down and talked about it and threw out ideas and threw out styles and kind of worked on a menu together. And then we did, you know, two full tastings of the menu with my other business partners and, you know, people that we respected in the community and in the food community. And, you know, um, and then kind of worked on it from there, you know, and uh, tweaked it, messed with, you know, even like, uh, it needs more lemon, that needs less sherry, that needs you know, less cream or whatever it may be, or, you know, even just, to, you know, tweaked it a little bit. Um, oh, that needs a finishing saw. You know what I mean? Just kind of took our egos out of it, and no matter who was doing the dish. Right. And decided you, their- you just give your honest, real opinion to make it the best dish you can. And, and that was a very rewarding experience for everybody. So I brought all the guys with me. Um, it's the first time <clears throat> Adam and, you know, Josh have ever cooked here, and it's the first time Adam Close has ever been in New York City even. So... You know, last night we were walking around the city and he's kind of doing the really looking around thing. And I was like, what's going on, man? And I was like, you're always like, I've never been here. I was like, oh, well, no wonder you're looking around. Like, I remember the first time I showed up in New York City, I was like, you know, almost overwhelmed a little bit. Sure. Um, so that's kind of how we did this dinner. Um, and hopefully, you know, maybe next time we do another dinner, maybe it would be like Dan Doyle and Friends or... Adam Close and Dan Doyle, or however, you know, I'd like to get some of these guys to have their own dinner and have their own experiences. You know, I, I was lucky enough to get invited in 2012 and somehow I've subsequently been lucky to be invited three other times. And, you know, I don't think I'm, you know, much better than either one of those guys either. You know what I mean? So it's, sure. they deserve as much credit for this particular dinner as I, I do, honestly. I think it's really all of us put our heart and soul into doing that. So I think it's almost, for sure, if we do what we've done in the last two tastings, Tonight, it'll be the best dinner I've ever done here, for sure. That's and one of the best dinners of my career, if not the. I mean, that's, that's very exciting. Yeah, so <laughs> it should be cool. Uh, and so you mentioned that you have an, another project opening up yes, in sir. Charleston. Could you, could you tell me a little bit about that? What's, yeah. what's the name? What's it going to be? It's going to, um, the, the idea is called Pugin Southern Kitchen, okay? So, like I said, we have Pugin's Porch, and that's one of the most iconic Charleston restaurants. And then we have Pugin Smokehouse, which is like a chef-driven barbecue concept, you know. Um, and the idea is to kind of make the everyman's Charleston restaurant and take the two concepts and, and I don't want to say mold it into one concept because that's like a humongous kind of chain restaurant menu. But what I mean is take the idea of, of, a, of a low country restaurant with smoke elements and, and, and write a menu that... You know, people can eat more than once or twice a month. It's it's a little bit far. It's a little bit outside of Charleston. It's a um, little town called Somerville, and I shouldn't say little because it's growing very rapidly. That's why we chose to to put it there. And um, and so it's going to be more of our first, you know, run into a neighborhood restaurant. Pugin's Porch and Pugin's Smokehouse are downtown. Yes, we have a lot of local business, but we also have a good bit of tourism business. And so this is our first chance to say the local community restaurant. You know, and the idea is to kind of take this idea. And, you know, if it goes as well as we hope it will, and, and, and I think it will, um, you know, and, and go to different markets, maybe go to Greenville or maybe go to Charlotte, maybe go to, you know, somewhere in the southeast and, and within, you know, a couple hours driving distance, at least initially. Sure. So Savannah, you know, there's a lot of, you know, we all three have different ideas. Um, and this is our first opportunity, too, that run, to run a restaurant that's not right down the street. I mean, Pugin Smokehouse and Pugin's Porch is five, six blocks apart, so I can walk there in 12 mm-hmm. minutes, and probably quicker, really, if I needed to. I could even run there in five or six. And so, 
it's our first chance to run a restaurant that's 30, 40, I mean, depending on traffic times, but even any time of day is 30 minutes. It could be an hour, depending on what time of day it is. So you live right around the corner from the originals. How, how do you feel about opening something up that's a little further away? Well, luckily, I, I live almost in between, but I, I might as well say I live at the restaurants. But um, <laughs> the, the other two are really close. So I'm about, I would be 20-ish minutes from the new one and about 20-ish minutes from downtown. So I'm kind of like dead in the middle. Okay. But if I'm downtown and it's 4 o'clock and I have to get to Somerville, well, I'm not getting there super quick. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I'm sure you you're, you live in New York City. I understand. You probably understand traffic well, patterns. We, we know commutes. Yeah, 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 traffic patterns and things. So are you feeling like, uh, how do you feel about that, though? You know, it's yeah, going to be a little, necessarily, it'll have to be a little more hands-off maybe on the day-to-day. So how do you feel about yeah, that? Yeah, that's going to be interesting. And I, I, I think initially I'll be there a good bit. I, I just don't want to lose sight of, of the downtown operations either. And it's going to be a very kind of weird thing for me because, you know, they're, they're both downtown restaurants are, you know, like Pugin's Porch gave me my opportunity to be the chef I wanted to be. And then Pugin's Smokehouse was, you know, I don't want to say my idea, but it was mostly my project, at least on the food side of it. And, you know, this time it's, a, um, you know, it's a different thing. And so, I hope to be able to manage all three of them and, you know, have a really good team of guys. Like I said, you know, have a really good executive chef. We have talented chef de cuisines and really good sous chefs, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, setting the expectation and making sure everybody can understand the quality that we're looking for. And, and I feel like, you know, we can pull that off. I mean, I, I think initially I'll probably be at the new restaurant a good bit and then, you know, probably be less downtown at least initially, to try to get it off the ground and make sure that everything is exactly the way we want it. And then after that, I'm hoping to somehow figure out a schedule where I rotate it. If I'm downtown three days a week in Somerville two, or however it works, or do one downtown, one out there, and, and rotate, you know. And, and I'm not really uh, sure how that's going to work. Yeah, no, you'll, you'll figure it out. It'll be, yeah, it'll yeah. be a fun adventure. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not really sure how that's going to work. And, uh, and bringing it back to the Charleston Christmas, do you – already do something uh special for christmas meals at your restaurant at any of your restaurants yeah yeah we, we're actually open every year at christmas time um and pugin's porch in particular pugin smokehouse for some you know it's 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 a barbecue concept so people don't expect us to do any we do like smoke prime rib and things like that but you know they there there's a lot of people that just want regular food at christmas which kind of trips me out because i just didn't you know, being open to Pugin's Porch with special menus and having, you know, lamb and crab cakes and like, you know, just going, you know, elevating yourself and having, you know, smoke prime rib and all that. It made sense to me in that environment. But in a barbecue environment, I really didn't think we'd do any business. I really didn't. I was like, well, with other restaurants, we might as well see. Yeah. And it's uh, quite busy. So we every year we do, you know, we decorate the house. Uh, our general manager, Adam Graves, did a great job this year making it seem like you're at your grandmother's house. There's christmas trees in every room there's big huge wreaths there's you know it smells like cinnamon and apples everywhere <laughs> you know it really feels like you walked into one of your relatives house because pugin sports is a house obviously and you know so we've done a really good job of building an atmosphere and um you know so we have a, a i think it's a four course christmas day menu um it's either three or four courses i, I i'm having a a blank for some reason but sure you know and you can come in and experience a true southern christmas and do you think now that you've gone through this experience of preparing prepping this dinner 
with maybe a slightly different take on the on the Charleston Christmas? Are you gonna do? Uh, or it, will that influence your menus moving forward? Christmases forward? Uh, um, Christmases of the future? I don't know if it'll influence Christmas menus, but I think it will definitely influence the regular winter menu. I think some of these, I think the oyster stew, for example, is one that I think should be on the menu. There's a seed seed and beet salad that we did for this thing that I think will, if, if my two business partners have anything to say with it, it'll be on there next week, but I just didn't want to put it on the menu before after I, until I did this dinner first. Um, you know, I think there's some stuff that may even go on the app side on the smokehouse menu. We did like a, uh, a crispy fried chicken thigh biscuit with hot honey and everybody just went crazy over it. So, you know, um, we probably maybe do some biscuit sliders, chicken sliders over on that. So I would say at least three or four things. I know the salad and the oyster stew will make it to the regular menu probably in early January. And the, the beet salad would probably last until... Even the early summer menu now, oyster stew probably would stay until spring and then come back the following fall. Sure. Just based on having the availability of oysters. You know, one really good oysters. You don't want to use in Gulf oysters if you don't have to. There's nothing wrong with Gulf oysters, but if you're doing oyster stew, you should probably use local oysters. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, the whole thing, the, the, the experience with Natalie, trying to delve into what Charleston Christmas is not just Southern Christmas and then this menu and the experience with the guys definitely will influence the cuisine moving forward and every one of these trips I've ever done to let's say New York LA you know any food trip influences my food anyway even if it's randomly enough going to like a Szechuan Chinese place and the clarity of their wonton you know soup or whatever you know what I mean like how they make it so clear you know what I mean like mm -hmm. that could even things that simple could influence I mean, I, you know, like, there's a restaurant in New Orleans, and they had these ribs years and years ago, and it was, but at that time, the best rib ever made. And I legitimately spent a year obsessing on how that rib was so good. So it was, like, trying different things and, mm -hmm. like, different woods and different smoke times and different smoke points of, of temperature. Like, you know what I mean? And yep. brining it and salt brining it and not, you know what I mean? So just for an entire year, I thought about obsessing about now. I don't know if I ever was able to recreate that particular rib, but I was definitely my the rib game <laughs> was substantially better at the end of that process. Sure. You know what I mean? So every one of these trips, or even if it's a, a bonding moment with the guys, it's something that you can't take away. You do a dinner like this, and they get to see the city, and, you know, these are type of moments that, you know, I've got, you know, some of my best friends that did these dinners with me, and they, you know, put, you know, Instagram memories up or Facebook memories or whatever of like doing them and remembering stories and they still talk about it and you know like we have a guy that still works with us has done one two times ago and he still talks about stories of the new guys about all the time you know for Tayshawn that was one of his you know life moments you know what I mean so you can't take that away yeah you know I mean I wish I'm glad I was able to do those things for people you know what I mean and, or they were able to come with me and help me even really I should say it more like that because those are experiences that I, you know I didn't get as a young chef or a young cook, and and I and I'm, I'm not no, I'm not even sure I deserved it, but <laughs> I was kind of an asshole. Sorry, I don't even know if I'm supposed to curse on. Oh radio. no, it's it's fine. Um, so I probably didn't deserve to go anyway if they had gone, mm -hmm. but 
And uh, you mentioned people coming out with you. Did uh, is Natalie uh, able to come here tonight or, or not? Well, well no. Yeah. Um, I mean, we didn't. We didn't. Um, you know, that's a good idea. I didn't think to ask her. But what we've talked about doing is I, I plan on um, when I get back to Charleston, inviting her and her husband down to the restaurant and recreating the the dinner for Amazing. them. You know what I mean? Just yeah. for them. And it, or maybe they're a group of their friends if, that, if that's what they wanted, you know. But kind of leave it up to them and say, "Hey, you know, you inspired me to do this dinner, and me and the guys really like to cook it for you." And you know, invite them down, you know, just for her spinning because she didn't have to help me with that at all. She didn't have to even really take my email, to be honest. I mean, I, I thought she would, but she didn't have to. Yep. And she spent, you know, three hours of her time, two and a half, three hours of her time. I mean, you know, just going full force with what about this what about this i mean like i mean i should have brought a tape recorder like yeah. i'm trying to write it down so fast i couldn't even keep up i should have brought a stenographer <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah uh well based on the time i think i have to give you back to the kitchen chef well that uh, uh, but i but i do really uh appreciate you talking to me about this project well thanks well thanks man i appreciate it i appreciate you guys inviting me on the radio and uh have a lovely christmas season thank you Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.